It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. I am Chris Roseboro. Boy, was that a long weekend. Oh, man. We're, this is our first inaugural broadcast from our brand new studio dorm room. <laughs> we just moved from one set of offices to another. You know, the, the one thing I don't like about moving is that it's a lot of work just to get back to ground zero. I mean, you had everything where it was supposed to be. You were able to sit at your desk and get some work done. But then, well, but then. I guess that's the way to put it. But then. But then you had to put everything into a box and... You were in a hurry, and you throw things in. You got wires everywhere, files everywhere, papers that are now part of a piling system. By the way, that's kind of my normal way of organizing papers. Put it into a pile, and and then you and you move, and then you got to reset everything up. You got to get the servers back online, and uh, <laughs> and so today it's uh, it's a, a miracle that we're not having a truckload of technical problems with our equipment. Anyway, we've got a great program today. We're going to talk, we're going to listen, we're actually going to respond to some listener email today. We've got some email coming in about the Beatles songs. And uh, boy, this is going to be interesting because, you know, we, we got two people who sent in their exegetical interpretations of what what be, what these Beatles songs that we played last week teach us about Christianity um, and wow, uh, two completely different interpretations. Not sure what to make about that. We're going to talk about High School Musical 3 and how you can share your faith using High School Musical 3. Okay. And uh, and then we're going to listen to Paul Washer. We got a great... Uh, we got some great audio from a lecture that Paul Washer gave at the Deeper Conference. And uh, we're going to then compare Paul Washer and what you heard him say at deeper to uh, what you, what uh, Victoria Osteen is saying about her brand new book uh love your life that's the name of her book love your life love life oh man all right let's dive into our email here okay this is from Mark Markham and Mark writes uh regarding uh the the Beatles songs now if you remember last week we uh, actually uh read a news story from the Telegraph in the UK Regarding Archie, that's uh, that's the term for the Archbishop of Canterbury and another another bishop who was basically making the claim that if you want to know if you want to learn about Christianity, then what you really need to do is you need to listen to more Beatles songs because you know the Beatles have a fresh way of describing Christianity. And I'm, I'm going, wow, I didn't even know that the Beatles were Christian. And so we played some songs. We played uh, um, "Bang Bang" Maxwell Silver Hammer. So we played that. Uh, we played uh, Mean Mr. Mustard. We played Day Tripper. And here comes the sun, or at least segments of it. And my question is, what did you learn about Christianity and which uh, which stories in the Bible did, did these songs make you want to read? Well, I've got a couple of responses here, and it's more confusing than ever. That's all I can say. It, it, you know, it, Apparently, when you're exegeting Beatles songs... The important thing is what it means to you. So Mark writes, he says, Hey, I was a bit behind on my podcasting, but I wanted to see if you thought my exegesis is worthy enough to be considered pirate material. Well, welcome aboard there, Mark. 
And he says, all right, so bang, bang, Maxwell's silver hammer came down upon her head. Chris, it is so obvious that the inspired lyrics mean uh, Jeremiah says God's word is like a hammer. That's from Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 29. And, of course, it breaks the sinner's self. Oh, okay. And he says, and then Maxwell must be a type of Christ. Hello, silver is precious. And when he is not our head... His word will crush us. That's the proper use of the law. Mark, I think this is quite a stretch, but you know, I, your interpretational grid is pretty interesting. And then it says regarding mean Mr. Mustard, he says faith is like a mustard seed. That's from Luke chapter 17, verse 6. So the word faith variety might add is, uh, is mean to sin, sola fide. Okay. And then regarding day tripper. He says, we're all children of the day and not the night, so we walk accordingly. That's what Day Tripper is about. It's about walking in the light of day from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8. The night is far spent and the day is at hand. That's Romans 13, 12. He says, and, and these, uh, to, uh, add these to your thoughts on here comes the sun and we are well on our way to compiling a finny systematic theology. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, he says, perhaps we can find a way to market some of the stuff uh, before Saddleback gets a hold of it. I think it may be too late there. Okay, now now here's the interesting thing. Okay, Mark, you know, he's offered his suggestions on exegeting these Beatles songs. Now, Roxy writes me, <clears throat> Roxy is a avid emailer to the Fighting for the Faith program. And so she's now giving us her interpretation and hermeneutic on these uh, these Beatles songs and she says Chris Chris don't you hear the messages in those Beatles songs that you played Maxwell's silver hammer made me grab my message Bible okay to read about David and Goliath of course he's just he just used a hammer instead of a stone oh I see so in the in the message paraphrase apparently uh, David uses a hammer on Goliath rather than a stone. All right, maybe. Okay. Uh, and then mean Mr. Mustard is is Jesus. How can you not see that? He had no place to lay his head. He got money from strange places. He was mean to the Pharisees. Oh, yeah, well. Well, that's interesting because um, you, and, you and Mark are in agreement there, you know, as far as Maxwell being a... Uh, a type of Christ or, uh, you know, talking about Jesus. And then, and then she says that day tripper is actually about the rapture. He says, we're taking the easy way out. Oh, that's right. He says it will take them so long to find out that it wasn't, it wasn't an alien abduction. <laughs> and then she says, here comes the sun is not about the rapture. It's about the day of the Lord when we will be judged for not bowing down to secular music. Ha, <laughs> Okay, um, sheesh, Chris, you didn't even mention she loves you, and, and are you still reading those gender-biased Bibles? Oh, man. Anyway, she says, uh, she's she signs off Roxy, she says that she's thinking that the bishop has had way too much Lucy in the sky with diamonds. Uh, Ro <laughs> Roxy, you and I are in agreement there. Uh, that, uh, by the way, Lucy in the sky with diamonds, that is a, that's code talk. Code talk. That's drug code talk for LSD. Yeah, because everyone knows that the way you draw closer to Jesus is by dropping LSD. Okay. <laughs> All right, we're going to move on to some more email here. This is an email regarding some baptism uh, 
state, statements I made regarding baptism. And uh, this, let's, let's read this one. I'm, I'm assuming that this is really not his name. He says his uh, name is Super Ninfreak. It, it could be. Uh, his name could be Super Ninfreak. But uh, I'm kind of guessing that's in the highly unlikely category. So uh, Super Ninfreak writes, he says, In your learning Christianity from the Beatles songs, Okay, he says, you talked about baptism as if it proves someone's faith. Yeah, actually, I did, didn't I? Yeah, I, I kind of talked about, you know, like, you know, well, I'm baptized, duh, you know, kind of thing. I, I, that's, not, that's kind of a paraphrase of what I said. And he says, what did you mean by this? He says, is baptism needed for salvation? Is everyone who's been baptized saved? If not, how does it prove that somebody is saved? Now, all right, this is a great question super ninfreak what's a ninfreak <laughs> i'm just uncertain about what a ninfreak is okay let's let's talk about why i use baptism that way first of all my question and we've talked about the baptism question before in this program is um in american evangelicalism there is this predominant view of baptism that i think is supremely in error i think it's completely wrong and um, that view of of, uh, of baptism basically says that the reason why somebody gets baptized is in order to show the world that they've made a decision for Jesus. Um, okay, uh, there's not a single passage of scripture that supports this view of baptism. Not one. There is no scripture. Uh, and, and you use it to... I, actually, that's true. I did used to believe that. I used to believe that that view. I, you know, I was a Nazarene. I went to Pasadena Nazarene for many years. Uh, went to uh, Maranatha High School in Sierra Madre. Pasadena Nazarene is where Dr. James Dobson attended church. You know, back when I was in junior high and high school. Um, you know, been been down the evangelical road. Grew up. You know, at least my junior high and high school years, I was in American evangelicalism. And so I used to believe that baptism was something that I did to show the world that I had um, become a Christian or made a decision for Jesus. And uh, like I said, the big problem here is that there is no passages of Scripture. There is no. I think that should be plural. There are no (laughs) there are no passages. There are no verses that support this view. Instead, when you look at the clear passages of Scripture regarding what baptism is and what baptism does, you come up with something completely different and so i'm gonna i read this recently on the air and i apologize for the uh for doing it again but i think it's going to be helpful let's let's take a look at what paul writes about baptism he says what shall we say then are we to continue in sin that grace may abound well by no means how can we who died to sin still live in it do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into christ were baptized into his death we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death, um, if, uh, it's Romans chapter 6. If we have been united with him in death uh, like this, we shall certainly be united with him in the resurrection like this. So this is just one passage we can talk about. There's other passages, and, and if, I, if you want to go back through the... Uh, 
Go back through our archives for Fighting for the Faith, and you'll – I did a program where we talk about baptism. Pull that show up. In fact, I'll just put a link to it. Uh, for the, On this show, if you go to fightingforthefaith.com, I'll put a link to that show on it where I walk through the passages of Scripture that talk about baptism. Now, here's the deal. If baptism is not something that we do to show the world that we've made a decision for Jesus, then what is the purpose of it at all? Well, we learn from Scripture that baptism is God's work. It's not mine, it's not yours, it's not your pastor's, it's God's work, okay? And so what happens is is that um, I take, I, I really take these passages seriously that talk about in our baptisms our sins are forgiven, our hearts are circumcised by Christ, we're buried with Christ, we're raised with Christ. There's some very important promises associated with baptism, and the nice thing then about this is that baptism is no longer my work, me showing the world what I've done. It's no longer just some mere symbol, but it's a means of grace. Therefore, in those times when I just am not feeling close to God, when I'm not feeling necessarily saved, when I'm feeling a little down or blue or life circumstances have basically challenged my faith in such a way where I wonder, man... Am I really saved? What I can do then, and what you can then do, is look to your baptism and say, wait a second, I've been baptized. And God's true to his promises. In my baptism, my sins are forgiven. I'm buried with Christ. I'm raised with Christ. My heart is circumcised by Christ. And it's something objective that's outside of me. Something that I can objectively look to and say, wait a second, God makes good on his promises. Here's what the scriptures say that baptism is. And this is the work that God does in baptism. And it's something that I can then use literally in a way to fight against my own sinful nature. To fight the doubts that arise in my mind that spring up because of my own sin and from the temptations of the devil. And it's something outside of myself that's not dependent upon me. Now, you ask the secondary question, is everyone who's baptized saved? I would say no, in much the same way that not everybody who hears the gospel is saved. Okay? So the answer to the question is no, it's not, it's, it's not this automatic thing where if you're baptized, it's some kind of a magical formula that whammo, blammo, everybody who's been sprinkled with water or immersed, depending on what your proclivity is there, that somehow that automatically means you're saved. No, God's promises are true. Okay, for instance, Romans ten seventeen says that faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And there's plenty of people who've heard the gospel and heard the word of Christ who still don't have faith. Does that negate the fact that faith comes by hearing? No, not at all. Okay, so uh, with baptism being a means of grace and it being God's work and these incredible promises attached to it, if you really want to use baptism the way God intended it, you use it in such a way as to look at it objectively and say, wait a second, shall I sin that grace may ab- may abound? Well, no, may that never be. How can I, who died to sin, still live in it? Don't you know that, that I have been baptized into Christ and in, have been baptized into Christ's death? I was buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, I too might walk in newness of life. You see how Paul is using Romans, in Romans 6, Paul is using baptism as a weapon against that 
idea of sinning and, and walking in sin and continuing to sin. How can I do such a thing? I've been baptized. You see, all of a sudden, if you if you take away this this idea that baptism is something I do to show the world that I've made a decision for Jesus, that view of baptism robs baptism of its power. And it turns it into your work. And not only that, it's a symbolic work. It's your symbolic work. I, I'm just here to announce that I've made a decision for Jesus and I'm going to go get wet. No. In your baptism, your sins are forgiven. They're washed away. That's what the clear passages say. You're buried with Christ. You're raised with Christ. And that has significance for your Christian walk. So, objectively, it's something that's done to you. It's not something you do. Because uh, can you put yourself into Christ's death? No, I don't think so. Can you circumcise your heart? No, I don't think so. Yeah. Okay. So um, only Christ can do that. These are things, you know, so baptism is God's work. Baptism is God's work. And it's real and it's powerful. And when you really embrace what the scriptures teach about baptism, it becomes something that is a powerful comforting word comforting truth powerful weapon in your daily christian walk and so what you heard there super nin freak which by the way is a very interesting name um what you heard there is me pointing to baptism in the way the scriptures point to it the way the scriptures teach us to point to our baptism and i know that in american evangelicalism that sounds odd well, I've never heard anyone do that before. What do you mean by that? Well, I understand that it sounds odd. But I'm speaking about baptism in a way that's biblical. So, when you're down, when you're feeling overwhelmed, when you're not exactly sure if you're a, a Christian, whether or not God can forgive you, go back to your baptism. Because it was something that God did to you. Important stuff. Important, important stuff, and it's comforting and it's powerful. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Can you believe it? He did it without my permission, too. That silly God, he acts like I have no say in the matter. Like I was dead in sin or something, and then he chose me. Who would have thunk? All right. It's uh, time for our news story today. I'm really looking forward to this one, too. Ah. Now, this one is not from Great Britain. Can you believe that? News story from uh, the Christian Post. <laughs> How to share your faith using High School Musical 3, senior year. I did not know that High School Musical 3 was Christian. Did you know that, John? No. Yeah, everything's Christian. Now. You know what's funny is, is that if you go to the Christianity Today website... Um, they do movie reviews, and one of the things they also do with their movie reviews is they um, have discussion questions. And so you can <laughs> you can use these discussion questions in Bible studies and and things like that. So and and the funny thing is is that they have them for some of the darndest movies. I mean, stuff you wouldn't normally think. You know, it's okay. Um, yeah, Tropic Thunder, the Bible study. <laughs> Yeah, right. No. 
Oh, man. Okay, so this is from the uh, Christian Post, dated Friday, October 24th, 2008, so it's a couple days old. How to share your faith using High School Musical 3 senior year. Troy and Gabriella are seniors. You know, I don't even know who they are. How sad is that? I'm assuming that Troy and Gabriella are, like, main characters in this whole High School Musical fad. Yeah, that would be my guess. Maybe they're, like, some hot couple or something. For those of you who have enjoyed the high, the high drama of this cute couple's ups and downs since the original High School Musical launched the uh, High School Musical Juggernaut back in 2006. Can you believe it's, it's all the way back to, two, I mean, 2006. It seems like just two years ago. <sighs> high School Musical 3 senior year has the ring of the end of an era. Well, praise the Lord. <laughs> Sorry. <clears throat> I didn't even, I, I completely missed out on this entire era. That shows you how irrelevant I am. All right. He says, uh, can't these two hotties stay in high school forever? Hang on a second. Who wrote this? <laughs> Jan Dratz. Guest po- guest columnist. Okay. <sighs> it didn't sound like a guy wrote that. Can't these two hotties stay in high school forever? I mean... I, I can't ever imagine getting to the point where I'm sitting here going, oh, please, can't these two hotties stay in high school forever? All right. <clears throat> Still, hope springs eternal, as does Disney's resourcefulness when it has a roaring success on its hands. So don't despair. Perhaps a way will be found to carry on after graduation rolls around. You know, I, we can suggest some, some sequels here. You know, uh, college musical, freshman year. College musical... Um, fraternity sorority edition college musical the graduation see we can we see i i see i see college musicals coming up now college musicals probably wouldn't appeal to some of the younger kids that watch the disney channel i've seen the demographic there you know these are your junior high you know you know late grade school and junior high kids but then you know maybe they can move it over to like mtv or something like that you know, so, I mean, can you imagine, you know, college musical on MTV? This is silly. When I was in Chicago, okay, I, I, had, a, I had a down day, okay? I was there over a weekend, so Saturday I went to the Field Museum. Amazing place, by the way. The Field Museum in, in Chicago, amazing. Um, that was my second time there, and I just wandered through that place, and I don't even feel like I scratched the surface. It was amazing. But then I'm nerdy. Um, so Sunday I, you know, I had a little bit of a down day and I was flipping the channels and Paris Hilton apparently has her own reality TV show on, on MTV. And it's, uh, something about becoming Paris Hilton's BFF. (laughs) And so there's people who are competing to become Paris Hilton's best friend forever. Is that what BFF means? And, um, I, watched about 10 minutes of it before I started having these uncontrollable urges to take an ice pick and stick it through my brain. <laughs> and I wanted to heat it up over the fire in my hotel room, you know, first before I, I mean, seriously, I mean, it was, I couldn't believe what I was watching, but you know, I know that has nothing to do with sharing your faith <laughs> using high school musical, the three. So let's, let's get back to uh, Jan Dratz. She's a guest columnist for the, christian post here all right okay 
maybe they can, you know, they, if they follow these high school kids all the way through life, they can have, you know, uh, you know, geriatric, the musical, you know, um, you know, retirement home, the musical first child, the musical rights. Exactly. And maybe, you know, if they really want to make it, you know, relevant and, and, uh, and real, it would have to be like community theater, you know, after that. And then maybe they can even do like divorce, the musical or rehab, rehab, right. Rehab, celebrate recovery, the musical. I know everyone's just sitting here going, get to the story, Rose, bro. All right, so let's continue. So perhaps a way will be found to carry on after the graduation rolls. After exploring that, Jan, I think we're pretty much all in, in unison that maybe this is it's good that this stops here, at least for Troy and Gabriella. So Zach Efron and Vanessa Hudgens once again play the, the click-crossing pair. Wow. What boldness. They cross, they, they cross clicks. Uh, uh, sports jock and brainiac, crazy about uh, music and each other. This time we watch them stage a high-energy, high, mus- uh, high school musical production that zeroes in on the seniors' hopes and fears about the unknown future that awaits every senior wa- launching out into the world. And I'm, fe- <laughs> I'm feeling that ice pick you know, urge again. <laughs> <Just wanna clears throat> Sorry. Okay. Will the relationship survive the long la- long distance drama of separate colleges? Will one of them meet someone new? Will they be able to live up to their hopes and dreams or crash and burn under the weight of the new freedoms and responsibilities that wait around the corner? Okay, one, two. We're three paragraphs into this, and so far I haven't figured out how to use my, use this to share my faith. All right. Okay, so the future often freaks us out, whether it's some big decision looming over us like where do we go to college or relational turmoil that's heading down a road where uncomfortable traveling, anxiety, apprehension, and angst can dog us like a bad burrito. I did not write that. She wrote that line. That's actually in the story. Apprehension, angst, and angst can dog us like a bad burrito. Now, that's some painful stuff. You ever have a bad burrito? That'll stick with you for a while. Um so what to do if you're a jesus follower there's that term again jesus follower already uh, jan we've got a problem i'm not a jesus follower i'm a christian because if my uh my identity is wrapped up in how good i follow jesus i can just pretty much quit right now give it up because um according to god's law i'm a sinner really 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 bad and, and i don't even come close to following jesus with any kind of victoriousness at all. All right, so if you're a Jesus follower, let me scratch this out. Hang on a second. <clears throat> we're going to, we're going to, an editing here. If you're a Christian, sorry, they, her editor should have picked that up. Okay, so this is, if you're a Christian, God's word holds a multitude of promises to cling to in the midst of, un, of an uncertain future. Really? I did not know that God's promises had to do with uh, going to different colleges, surviving a relationship that's long distance, uh, crash, uh, new freedoms and responsibilities that wait around the corner. Yeah. Tell you what, hang on a second here. She's not really describing Christianity, so let's go back to Jesus follower. Okay, re-editing here. Uh, If you're a Jesus follower... God's word holds a multitude of promises to cling to in the midst of an uncertain future because your hope is in him. Your ultimate future is already determined to be with him in heaven. Yes. You may face uncertain or difficult times along the way, but you have God's promises 
to lean on that say, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them, for the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. That's Deuteronomy 31, 6. Taken out of context, of course, so we, you know, there's a narrative there that that's actually works in. Or check out what the psalmist says. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my savior. My God is my rock in whom I find protection. He is my shield, my strength of my salvation, and my stronghold. That's Psalm 18, 2. You know, what's really interesting here, uh, I've got my computerized Bible open, and I just get the feeling I'm going to have to, um, <clears throat> you know, why is it that we, you know, it's all the happy stuff that we, we mine out of the scriptures. Have you all ever read Psalm 13? Okay, so here she's, she's, she says, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my savior. My God is my rock in whom I find protection. He is my shield, the strength of my salvation, and my stronghold. That's absolutely a true passage of scripture. Okay, and I'm not saying that it isn't. My problem here is, is that, you know, she's turning God into some kind of, you know, promise giver in the midst of uncertain times. But if you read, if you read through the Bible, one thing is certain is, is that a lot of the cats in Scripture, man, they they really suffered through some pretty bleak stuff. Listen to the psalmist here in Psalm 13. He says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? How come nobody ever quotes this, this psalm? Yeah, you know, there's another. John, don't get logical on me. Okay. <laughs> How many of the disciples lived a long life? Okay, well, let's let's walk through the 12 real quick. I won't name them all, but Judas went and hung himself. Okay, so he's he's he had an untimely death. And then all but one of the remaining 11 were actually martyred. Martyred. I, I mean, seriously, you know, Peter crucified upside down. James had his head lopped off. Um, you know, there's stories about some of the disciples being zipped up in animal skins and thrown into the arena with wild animals. Nothing like being, you know, becoming lion chow. And then, you know, and then you've got the whole story about the Christians, you know, under the Neronian persecution. They became uh, tiki torches at his lawn parties. Did you know that? You know, that was the days before they had streetlights. And so Christians were very useful in that sense. You know, just slather them in tar, wait till sunset, and then light them on fire. And they would last at least five or six hours. A whole new term, the light of the world. Right, exactly. You are the light of the world. Talk about uncertain times. Okay. You know what, folks? Here's my issue is is that I'm sorry, but Christianity is not about solving your uncertainties and your angsts and stuff like that. In fact, being a, dare I say it, a Christ follower could seriously really mess things up for you. Okay. To the point where you might actually have to give up your life, you know, or you might end up writing a psalm like David. Consider and answer me, O Lord. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep in the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. <laughs> Psalm 13 kind of starts off with um, all kinds of angst there, doesn't it? And you know what's funny is, is that when you treat Christianity as some kind of a problem-solving religion, then people feel guilty when they really, really struggle with life's real problems. And things don't go as planned. I'm sorry, but uh, to quote uh, one of the famous 
uh, pop singers of of America of Americana. God never promised you a rose garden. Never. Okay. All right. So okay. So check out. So one of the best ways to keep focused on God is to run to Him in prayer whenever you feel stressors pressing in on you. Like man, I'm feeling a stressor. Ah, God help me. I'm feeling stressed. <laughs> Nero's gonna kill me and make me into a torch. <laughs> oh man. Another thing that can help us in tough times is to memorize some key Bible verses that speak directly to the whole idea of feeling stressed out. Check out this link to find some verses to help you whenever you feel anxiety overwhelming you. Pick up one or two key verses that really speak to you about God's promises and memorize them. You've got to be kidding me here. So apparently the way to share your faith using high school musical is to find Bible verses that talk about stressors or God's promises. And then when you're having stressors. So in other words, Christianity is about overcoming stressors and warm fuzzies. It's, uh, it's all keyed into your emotions. Well, you know, I have an idea, uh, Jan. You go ahead and use... High School Musical 3 to share your faith and I'll use the Bible to share my faith because you know what is painfully clear we're not talking about the same faith we're talking about some two completely different things here so and I know that's going to sound mean and, and nasty and and really hard for some of you to handle but you know about the only thing I can say about that is get over it because it's true so <laughs> All right, we're going to take our first break. If you would like to email me about your stressors and all of the verses that you've ripped from context that make it so that you can get through your stressors, you know, whether or not you've had a bad burrito and you have the stress of diarrhea or you're making a tough decision in your life, what college to go to, e- email me, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, and we'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Hi, I'm Patrick Kyle, a founding partner of New Reformation Press. Just as the first Reformation rediscovered, reclaimed, and restated timeless truths from the Word of God, the mission of New Reformation Press is to reintroduce these truths to the contemporary church and culture. All of our resources are handpicked to ensure that you have the best available biblical and doctrinal materials at your fingertips to help you grasp the treasures of the Reformation and deepen your own understanding of Christ and His work on your behalf. Browse our website at newreformationpress.com. We offer books, CDs, downloadable MP3s, and our very own line of Reformation-themed clothing. Check out the audio presentation, Bible in an Hour. Absolutely the finest overview of the scriptures that the staff at New Reformation Press has ever heard. Also, Dr. Rod Rosenblatt's presentation, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church. 
a stunning 200-proof presentation of the gospel for those who have been hurt by the church and discouraged as a result of false teaching. Available exclusively through NewReformationPress.com. Again, that's NewReformationPress.com. All right, we're back. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. I literally do what I do as a service to you in love. And I understand that taking a hard line on the truth just seems like it's so arrogant and so unloving and so unkind. And you would be so wrong if that's what you thought. It's not true. I would be a hater of you if I didn't tell you the truth. And I wouldn't care a whit about you. Wouldn't care a whit if the only thing I was interested in doing was blowing smoke and trying to make you feel comfortable with your idols and your sin and your false ideas. Nope, that's not what we do here. So, um, you know, we're going to do a little bit of work here. I'd like you to uh, like to ask you all ahead of time to stay through the rest of the program. It's going to take us about an hour to get through all of this. And what I'm going to do here is um, I'm going to play the opening portion from a lecture given by uh, the Reverend Paul Washer. Those of you who are familiar with him know that this is a guy who pulls no punches regarding what's going on in American evangelicalism and the need to preach the gospel. And by the gospel, that means the gospel in its full counsel. That means bad news and good news, the law and the gospel. And uh, he was recently invited to speak at the Deeper Conference, which was put on by the guys from Way of the Master Radio. And uh, so we're going to listen to the opening, really about 15, 20 minutes or so, of what Paul Washer said at the Deeper Conference. And then what we're going to do is we're going to compare what Paul Washer said at the Deeper Conference to what Victoria Osteen is saying about her new book. She's out on tour promoting her new book. And uh, do you all know the name of her new book? (laughs) Love Your Life. Living Happy, Healthy, and Whole. Victoria Osteen has a new book, and I guarantee you she's going to make a bazillion dollars. And the name of the book is Love Your Life. Living Happy, Healthy, and Whole. So what we're going to do before we get to Victoria Osteen, I mean, what's one of the things I, one of the ways we learn is by taking two completely bizarre polar end opposites and sticking them together and see how they fit. So what we're going to do is we're going to do a little mashup here. We're going to, we're going to do Paul Washer first and we'll do Victoria Osteen second and see which of these two is actually teaching you the truth and which of you loves you enough to tell you the truth. And without any further ado, here's the angry white man himself, the Reverend Paul Washer from the Deeper Conference. We'll pick up right at the tail end of his prayer before he starts his lecture. Glory for you, Christ, and benefit for your church. Help us, Lord, to understand and apply. In Jesus' name, amen. First, I want to talk to you about this. When we look at Romans 1.16, we understand that Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. That might seem something unusual to us. 
that he has to make that statement, being an apostle, a principal carrier of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I want to tell you that Paul's flesh had every reason to be ashamed of the gospel because the gospel he preached contradicted everything that was believed to be true and everything that was believed to be sacred in his culture. Now, just really quick, I want to say this. Paul makes no attempt to become relevant to his culture. He makes no attempt to make treaty with his culture, adapt his message to the culture, repackage his message, or any of the other nonsense that's become so prominent in the evangelical community today. To the Jew, the gospel, Paul's gospel, was the worst sort of blasphemy because it claimed that the Nazarene who died on that cross, accursed, was the Messiah and the Son of God. To the Greek, it was the worst sort of absurdity because it claimed that this Jew from some out-of-the-way place was actually God in the flesh. Therefore, Paul knew that whenever he opened his mouth to speak the gospel, he would be utterly rejected and ridiculed to scorn unless the Holy Spirit intervened and moved upon the hearts and minds of his hearers. Let me pause Paul Washer here. He is making a great point. Paul, in Romans chapter 1, says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And here he's going to lay out the shame of the gospel. And Paul Washer is going to make the claim that you don't make any concessions to the culture and that you must preach the gospel in all of its shamefulness, in all of its stumble, stumbling blockedness. Yeah. To the point where doing so would cause you to experience ridicule and scorn and persecution. Where did this guy come from? I mean, doesn't he understand that's just not how we do things anymore here in America? We want to make the gospel as appealing to everybody. Forget this narrow road stuff. We want a broad road. Forget the fact the scripture says it's the broad road that leads to destruction. Well, let's continue with this backwater angry man himself, Paul Washer. The problem is he's right. Now, this is what he knew. This is what you should know. If you're properly preaching the gospel, it will be scandalous. And if you try to make it less of a scandal, you no longer preach the gospel. Amen. Now, I want to just quote from a few contemporaries of primitive Christianity. Pliny the Younger writes, After examining the beliefs of two Christian slave girls under torture, he says, I discovered nothing but a perverse and extravagant superstition. In the dialogue Octavius by Manusius Felix, he derides the Christians saying their ceremonies center on a man put to death for his crime and on the fatal wood of the cross. He goes on to say that Christians put forward sick delusions, a senseless and crazy superstition which leads to the destruction of all true religion. I know I may offend many on this, but most, most modern-day church growth strategies 
used in evangelical churches, their main focus is to get around the very thing I just read. And he's right. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And think about the scandal of the whole thing. If you're not sure what the scandal of the whole thing is, stay tuned. Paul Washer is going to explain it in detail. Just how scandalous the gospel is. And he's made the claim that if you try to get around this stumbling block, if you try to make it less scandalous, you're not preaching the gospel anymore. An oracle of Apollo preserved in the writings of Augustine in response to a man's question about what he can do to turn his wife away from the Christian faith says this. Let her continue as she pleases, persisting in her vain delusions and lamenting in song a God who died in delusions, who was condemned by judges, whose verdict was just and executed in the prime of life by the worst of deaths, a death bound with iron. Lucian, he was basically the Voltaire of, of antiquity, mocks Christians in his De Morte Peregrini as poor devils who deny the Greek gods and instead honor that crucified sophist and live according to his laws. In Origen's work, Contra Celsus, Celsus declares what drunken old woman telling stories to lull a small child to sleep would not be ashamed of uttering such preposterous things. Well, apparently the primitive Christians weren't interested in being seeker-sensitive with the Greeks and Romans because apparently they're pretty offended by the whole thing. Hmm. Now, in our day, the primitive gospel is no less offensive, for it still contradicts every tenet or ism in our culture. Relativism, pluralism, and humanism. Now, let's just look at these for just a moment. We live in an age of relativism. A belief system based on the absolute certainty that there, no, that, that, that there are no absolute certainties. We hypocritically applaud men for seeking the truth, but call for the public execution of any man who believes he has found it. We live in a self-imposed dark age. Why? The reason for this is clear. Natural man is a fallen creature. He is morally corrupt and he is hell-bent on autonomy or self-government. He hates God because God is righteous and he hates God's laws because they censor him and restrict his evil. He hates the truth because it exposes him for what he is and troubles what is left of his conscience. Therefore, fallen man seeks to push the truth, especially the truth about God, as far from him as he can possibly remove it. He will go to any extent to suppress the truth, even to the point of pretending that there is no such thing as truth, or that if it does exist, it cannot be known or have any bearing on our lives. Realize this about the gospel. It is never a case of a hiding God, but of hiding man. The problem is never the intellect, but the will. I do not believe that the Bible gives any room for atheism. There are liars and God-haters who push the truth out of their minds, but there are no such thing as atheists. For although they knew him, you see, like a man who hides his head in the sand to avoid a charging rhino, modern man denies the truth of a righteous God and moral absolutes in hopes of quieting his conscience and putting out of his mind the judgment that he knows 
must come. Are you catching what his themes are here? He's talking about moral absolutes. He's talking about unrighteous men, who, wicked men who are suppressing the truth and trying to get out of their mind the judgment that they know will come. Paul Washer here is dealing in sin, judgment, and ultimately he's going to deal with grace because he deals with the gospel. I'm not going to play his whole lecture here, though. I just want you to just do some comparative work, okay? And I defy anybody to tell me he's not dealing in biblical categories because he is, and he's not whitewashing them, and he's not glazing over them with some jelly donut glaze to try to make it sweeter. He's actually pouring this thing out the way it's presented in Scripture. Now, the Christian gospel is a scandal to the man involved in relativism and his culture because he, the Christian gospel does the one thing that man most hopes to avoid. It awakens him from his self-imposed slumber to the reality of his fallenness and rebellion and calls him to reject autonomy, self-government, and submit to God through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Submit to God through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Not a lot of preachers like this guy anymore, are there? He's taking Christ at his word. Luke 24, Jesus says that repentance and the forgiveness of sins will be preached to all nations. This is what Paul is preaching. He's Paul Washer here is preaching repentance and the forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, we also live in an age of pluralism, a belief system that puts an end to truth by declaring everything to be true. Now, do you understand what I'm saying? When everything is true, when contradictory statements that are diametrically opposed, when both of them are labeled as true, you have the death of truth. Now, it may be difficult for contemporary Christians to understand what I'm about to say, but the Christians living in the first few centuries of the Christian faith were marked and persecuted as atheists. And you will be too. If a revival doesn't break out in this country, this is one of the reasons you're going to go to jail. You hear that? Paul Washer is basically making the claim that if God doesn't grant a complete turnaround in the Christian church in America, it's just a matter of time before real Christians are going to be rounded up and taken to jail. Little side note here. It kind of creeps me out that they, all these people are writing songs to Obama. When was the last time we saw a deified political leader? And you notice that he isn't spending much time really putting that one down. He has no problem with people thinking about him as the one. He's not distancing himself from that. It kind of creeps me out. Is he some kind of new Caesar? Is he, uh, he, is he, is he the new God King? Just a little note. I don't continue. Now, the culture surrounding the Christian was immersed in theism. The world was filled with images of deities and religion was a booming business. 
Men not only tolerated one another's deities, but they swapped them and shared them like baseball cards. The entire religious world was going on just fine until the Christians showed up and declared that the gods made with hands are no gods at all. They denied the Caesars the homage they demanded, refused the bend the, to bend their knee to all other so-called gods, and they confessed Jesus alone to be Lord of all. And therefore, they were labeled atheists. The entire world looked on such jaw-dropping arrogance and reacted with fury against the Christians' intolerable intolerance to tolerance. Now, I want you to look at something. Look at these words. Jaw-dropping arrogance. The same scenario abounds in our world today. Against all logic, we are told that all views regarding religion and morality are true, no matter how radically different they are or contradictory they may be. The most overwhelming aspect of all of this is that through the tireless efforts of the media and the academic world, this has quickly become the majority view. However, pluralism does not address the issue or cure the malady. It only anesthetizes the patient so that he no longer feels or thinks. Now, the gospel is a scandal because it awakens man from his slumber and refuses to let him rest on such an illogical footing. Now, did you hear that? He's basically claiming that pluralism is completely illogical and that Christians were accused of basically being intoler intolerable regarding their intolerance and accused of being arrogant for believing that there was only one true way. Yet, that is exactly what truth tells us. 4 plus 4 equals 8. It does not equal 42. Period. Truth is truth. A equals A. I was listening, I was watching the Civil War series. Yeah, that's you know, one of the things I do. I like the, the old PBS Civil War series. It's a great series. Probably watched it a bazillion times by now. <laughs> and there's a part in there where uh, Abraham Lincoln, you know, they, they, they quote Abraham Lincoln, and he was talking about the fact that during the Civil War that both sides pray to the same God and both sides claim that God is on their side. And Abraham Lincoln made this very simple, logical connection. He said, it may be that God is opposed to both sides. Okay, It might logically be true that God is opposed to both the North and the South, but it doesn't make any logical sense that he would be in favor of both, at least regarding their causes. They were mutually exclusive. And so God could be could be against both of them, but he couldn't be for one side winning the war at the same time he was for the other side winning the war. Think about it. It forces him to come to some conclusion. How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. And if Baal, follow him. The true gospel is radically exclusive. I never thought I would have to say this in front of a bunch of evangelicals. That's the state of the church, Paul. Completely lost it. I never thought there would come a day when I would have to say such a thing to evangelicals that the gospel is radically exclusive. I never thought that we would begin to lose Christ 
as the only way. Now listen, the true gospel is radically exclusive. Jesus is not a way, but the way, and all other ways are no way at all. Now listen to this very carefully, because this is what is happening today. If Christianity would only move one small step toward a more tolerant ecumenicalism and change the definite article V in the Savior for the indefinite article A or A Savior, the scandal would be removed and the world and Christianity could become friends. Do you realize that? Yep, that's true. If Jesus just becomes a way, then we can hold hands with everybody in the whole world and be their friends. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except for through me. Intolerably exclusive. Christianity is that. If we would simply say that Yahweh is a God, we would have no persecution on our hands. If we would simply say that Jesus is a Savior, I'd be on the Oprah Room for show, show. Do you realize that? All the scandal would remove if we just said, He's our Savior. You have yours, we'll have ours. We're not going to impose anything upon you. We're not going to wrangle in dialogue. Nothing. If that's your way, you go with that way, and I'll go with mine. If we would only do that, we would never be persecuted. But if we do that, Christianity ceases to be Christianity. We cease to be Christian. Christ is denied and the world is without a savior. Yep. We live in an age of humanism. Over the last several decades, man has fought to purge God from his conscience and his culture. He has torn down every visible altar to the one true God and has erected monuments to himself with the zeal of a religious fanatic. This is not secularism against religious mind thinking. Don't think that. Because the secularist has a religion. And oftentimes he is much more fanatical in his religion than any Christian ever pretended to be. Man has managed to make himself the center, measure, and end of all things. He praises his own inherent worth, demands homage to his self-esteem, and promotes his own self-fulfillment or self-realization as the greatest good. Now, if you don't think that hasn't crept into Christianity, then you've not read the book, Your Best Life Now. Because that's exactly what that's about. Mm -hmm. He explains away his gnawing conscience. See, he can't get rid of that. It's there to stay. He explains away his gnawing conscience as the remnants of an antiquated religion of guilt, Christianity. And he excuses himself from any responsibility for the moral chaos surrounding him by blaming society, or at least that part of society that has not yet attained to his enlightenment. Any suggestion that his conscience might be right in its testimony against him, or that he might be responsible for the almost infinite variations of maladies in the world is unthinkable. For this reason, the gospel is a scandal to fallen man because it exposes his delusion about himself, it convicts him of his fallenness and guilt, 
This is the essential first work of the gospel, and this is why the world so loathes true gospel preaching. Because the true gospel ruins man's party, reigns on his parade, exposes his make-believe, and points out that the emperor has no clothes. Well, how does your self-esteem feel after listening to that? I think that was the whole point, don't you? We'll pick up Paul Washer. We're going we're, we're gonna to take a quick break, and we'll pick up uh, with more of what he has to say on the other side of the break. So if you would like to email me, you can do so at talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com and let me know what you think of this kind of gospel preaching. Has your self-esteem been wounded by this man because he would dare to make you feel like your great thoughts about yourself or an idol? Hmm. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. My local Christian bookstore just sells Jesus Schlock. Where can I find good material? We at NewReformationPress.com are committed to providing a hand-picked selection of books and teaching materials that educate, inform, and entertain while uniquely maintaining a relentless focus on the gospel. We believe that these forgotten doctrines and their scriptural emphases can not only enrich individual Christians and revive the church, but also address the deepest needs of our culture. Discover our growing library of resources by Dr. Rob Rosenblatt of the White Horse Inn radio program, including his powerful address, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church, available exclusively at NewReformationPress.com, or the big-picture audio presentation Bible in an Hour by Pastor Wade Butler. Learn the center and scope of redemptive history and scripture in just one hour. And of course, be sure not to miss our selection of t-shirts, gifts, and artwork as well. NewReformationPress.com. Finally, Reformation Theology made accessible. All right, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith, and my name is Chris Rosebro. We're in the middle of listening to a lecture given by the Reverend Paul Washer, Baptist brother who actually gets law and gospel. And I think one of the things he excels at is pouring out God's law on people in all of its flaming acidity 
burns away just about any righteousness that you think you might have and makes you realize just how wretched and depraved you are. One of the things that uh, Paul Washer excels in. And uh, that's not exactly uh, the kind of thing that people want to hear nowadays. But so what? That's the thing we need to hear. Let's continue with Paul Washer and his uh, lecture from the Deeper Conference. The scriptures recognize that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a stumbling block and foolishness to all men of every age. And I'm going to say this later. It's not just a scandal. It's supposed to be. Who was one of the old, old revivalists that said, how could the world not get along with the holiest man who ever walked on the planet, but it can get along with us? We're supposed to be a scandal. Now, we don't have to live like a bunch of fanatics. We don't have to do a whole bunch of crazy things to be a scandal. Just be faithful to this one proclamation. Jesus is Lord of all. Now, to seek to remove the scandal from the message is to make void the cross of Christ and its saving power. We must understand that the gospel is not only scandalous, but it's supposed to be. Through the foolishness of the gospel, God has ordained to destroy the wisdom of the wise, frustrate the intelligence of the greatest minds, and humble the pride of all men, to the end that no flesh may boast in his presence, but just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul's gospel not only contradicted the religion, philosophy, and culture of the day, but it also declared war on them. Not a political war, not a military war, but a spiritual war of truth. It refused truce or treaty with the world and would settle for nothing less than culture's absolute surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Even to every thought of our mind being held captive to Christ. Did you catch that? The Reverend Washer here is basically making the claim that this war that's been started the spiritual war, that the terms of this war with those whom we are, you know, those who are having this war waged against them is unconditional surrender. There is no negotiated peace. It's unconditional surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Well, now there's a thought. That's just not going to go over very well, is it? I don't think Oprah is going to like this. We would do well to follow Paul's example. We must be careful to shun every temptation to conform our gospel to the trends of the day or the desires of carnal men. One of the things about missions, there's all kinds of missions in this world. We don't need more missions. It's just most of them aren't biblical missions. Let me share with you something. Those of you who are budding missionaries... Missions is to be defined by the exegete and the theologian, the student of Scripture, not by the anthropologist, sociologist, and those who are experts in the new cultural trend. We do missions and evangelism according to the sacred writings of Scripture, and we need no help from Wall Street. We have no right to water down the gospel's offense or civilize its radical demands in order to make it more appealing to a fallen world or carnal church members. 
Our churches are filled with strategies to make them more seeker friendly by repackaging the gospel, removing the stumbling block and taking the edge off the blade so that it might be more acceptable to carnal men. We ought to be seeker friendly, but we ought to realize that there is only one seeker and he is God. If we are striving to make our church and a message and our message accommodating, let us make them accommodating to him. If we are striving to build a church or ministry, let us build it on a passion to glorify God and a desire not to offend His Majesty. (laughs) Oh, I love it. Oh, man. There's only one seeker. That's Jesus Christ. He's the one who came to seek and save the lost. And uh, you don't make any concessions to the world because you don't want to offend Christ. Yeah, our our church is seeker sensitive. We're sensitive to the only seeker out there, Jesus Christ. As far as offending anybody else, we don't care if we offend anybody else. Any human beings who are offended by what we preach, so be it. The last person we want to offend is Jesus. Hmm. This guy seems to have it backwards from Rick Warren and Bill Hybels and those guys. Well, they both can't be right, can they? And that's the point. Either Paul Washer is right or Joel Osteen is right. Either Paul Washer is right or Rick Warren is right. Either Paul Washer is right or Bill Hybels is right. But they can't both be right. Because Joel Osteen, Rick Warren, and Bill Hybels have a completely different way of doing it. They don't want to offend the world. Paul Washer doesn't want to offend Christ. To the wind with what the world thinks about us, we are not to seek the honor of earth, but the honors of heaven. Now, another thing I want to point out before we go to the preaching. Our message is not only scandalous, it's unbelievable. I want you to know that it is an unbelievable message. As we have argued, Paul's flesh was not had it, or Paul's flesh had every reason to be ashamed of the gospel he preached. If there is still another reason for fleshly shame, the gospel is an absolutely unbelievable message, a ludicrous word to the wise of the world. As Christians, we sometimes fail to realize how utterly astounding it is when anyone believes our message. In a sense, the gospel is so far fetched that its spread throughout the Roman Empire is proof of its supernatural nature. What could ever bring a Gentile completely unaware of Old Testament scriptures and rooted in either Greek philosophy or pagan superstition to believe a message, such a message, about a man named Jesus? He was born under questionable circumstances to a poor family in one of the most despised regions of the Roman Empire. And yet the gospel claimed that he was the eternal son of God who was conceived of the Holy Spirit in the womb of a virgin. He was a carpenter by trade, an itinerant religious teacher with no official training, and yet the gospel claims that he surpassed the combined wisdom of the Greek philosopher and the Roman sages of antiquity. He was poor and had no place to lay his head, and yet the gospel claims that for three years he fed thousands by a word, healed every manner of illness among men, and even raised the dead. 
He was crucified outside of Jerusalem as a blasphemer and an enemy of the state, and yet the gospel claims that his death was the pivotal event in all of human history and the only means of salvation from sin and reconciliation to God. He was placed in a borrowed tomb, yet the gospel claims that on the third day he arose from the dead and presented himself to many of his followers and 40 days later ascended up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Thus the gospel claims that a poor Jewish carpenter who was rejected as a lunatic and a blasphemer by his own people and crucified by the state is now the savior of the world, the Lord of lords and the king of kings and at his name every knee will bow including Caesar's. Now do you have any idea how impossible it is for anyone in Paul's time to believe this message? It is impossible. Well, that pretty much sums up the scandal of the Christian gospel in a nutshell. I don't have anything else I could possibly add to this. That's the Christian message. You are conceived and born in sin and rebellion to God. You are wicked through and through, dead in your trespasses and sins, and you are deluding yourself into thinking that you are a good person because you know, because your heart convicts you, because the law of God's been written on your heart, that you are going to face judgment someday. And here's the other second half of this. All of that sin that you've racked up and the wrath of God that's going to be unleashed against you for the wicked things that you've done, has all God's wrath has been propitiated by a guy who was born in a backwood backwater district of the Roman Empire two thousand years ago, grew up in poverty, was conceived under suspicious circumstances, didn't have a lot of money, and was crucified and killed as a criminal, a blasphemer, and a lunatic, and that guy happened to be God in human flesh and his death on the cross actually paid for your sins and mine and propitiated God's wrath. Therefore, repent of your wickedness and trust in this good news. news. Yeah, that's the real good news. Foolishness to the wise. Stumbling block to Jews. Utter nonsense to Gentiles. That is the Christian gospel in a nutshell. And I think Paul Washer has done a fantastic job here of laying out the case here for this. By the way, there's a lot more to this lecture. I'm 22 minutes into it, and this goes on for almost an hour and 10 minutes. I'll put a link up to this at fightingforthefaith.com. It's uh, posted up on YouTube by a friend of mine by the name of Lane Chapman. And uh, you definitely, (laughs) definitely want to... uh, hear the rest of this lecture by Paul Washer. It's brilliant. Now, I want you to compare what you just heard Paul Washer say to what you're going to hear from Victoria Osteen and her new book on loving your life. Just take these two people and we're going to mash them together and you tell me which of these people is actually teaching the truth. So here's Victoria Osteen on CBN, Christian Broadcasting Network, being interviewed about her new book, Love Your Life. 
Well, last August, Victoria Osteen was in the headlines after a jury cleared her of all charges in a civil suit. Victoria's used to being in the spotlight, but for very different reasons. Take a look. Victoria Osteen pastors one of the largest, most diverse congregations in America. With Gotta stop. Did you hear that sentence? Victoria Osteen pastors. Pastors. There is no such thing as a female Christian pastor. The animal doesn't exist. Biblically, it is forbidden by God. How many of the disciples were women? Oh, none. Jesus must have been a sexist. Her husband, Joel. Over 40,000 people attend weekly services at Lakewood Church in Houston. Victoria says her heart is to help women and families reach their highest potential in Christ. She shares how you can live life to its fullest in her new book, Love Your Life. Please welcome to the 700 Club, Victoria Osteen. Great Thank to you, have Jerry. you with us. Thank you. You know, we, we all see you regularly, and you do such a wonderful job with the program that you do on TV. And then when you're in a public position and something happens to you that you can't always respond to publicly, everybody looks at that and says, what in the world's going on? How did you talk about loving your life? Was it easy to love your life as you were going through that civil suit that was was placed against you? You know, Terry, we all go through difficulties. We all have challenges in life. And I think one of the most important things that we have to do is to stay focused on who we are and the truth that lives inside of us. And you know, that's what I did. I just... <sighs> the truth that lives inside of us? The truth that lives inside of me is my sin, my wretched heart, my wickedness, um, yeah, actually, yeah, the truth that's inside of me condemns me. God's law is written on my heart, but the gospel isn't. So this is all about achieving your fullest potential. How much potential does a sinner have? Somebody who's dead in their sins. I'm just curious. Let's continue with, uh, heresy Barbie. This began to, to, uh, stay focused on who I was. I didn't let other things define who I was. You know, it doesn't matter if you've gone through a divorce, if you're fighting an illness, if you will just stay focused on the truth that lives inside of you, that God's never going to leave you or forsake you, and let Him fight your battles for you. Then you'll come out on the other side stronger and more with more wisdom than ever before. What happened? <laughs> wow, that sounds too good to be true. It is on that continental flight good grief that was the the charges were so unbelievable well you know what i didn't want to talk about it then because i'm not going to get into right you know well, talking about people thing to do when the suit is still well and, and you, you know what it's not my place to talk about people i'm here to encourage people i'm here to lift people up you know i'm not going to get into that but i just know you know that a jury of my peers unanimously thought that it was nonsense and it was called a frivolous lawsuit and and you know so that's really that's all you know that I really want to talk about it because you know, it doesn't you, help anybody <laughs> you talk about being able to stay focused on positive things every one of us has things that happen in our lives whether it's in our immediate families our workplace uh, might be with friends that try to pull us down from the place that really allows us 
to rise up on eagle's wings. How do you do that? How do you stay focused on the positive when the world is whirling around you? Right. Well, you know what? You really got to get up every day and you got to just, you know, give your life to Christ fresh and new. The Bible talks about his mercies. His grace is new every single morning. And you know what? We get up and we focus the first thing, we give our first attention to God. And, you know, what? we stay, we, we come to Him. We just, you know, ask Him to give us direction for the day and help us. And then, you know what? We watch, uh, we guard ourselves from what we're, we're allowing to, you know, come into our life. Because I think that's so important. You can't stay above the fray if you're in the fray. Exactly. You know, so you have to just guard what you watch, guard what you say. You know, just keep yourself above the things that would try to pull you down. Now, a lot. Uh, is this in the Bible anywhere? I, I mean, seriously. You just gotta stay above it. Just gotta stay. You gotta gotta guard what you let into your life. Uh huh. Where's where's the confessions of sin here? I mean, that's I mean, God, Joel never really talks about sin, does he? I mean, I don't think 40,000 people would be attending his church on a weekend if he was talking about sin the way Paul Washer does. A lot of times you may be in a situation where you're dealing with a family member that's sick and things are, mm -hmm. are hard. You know, you may be going through some tough times in a relationship. But, you know, even... You know, I heard about that in uh, the High School Musical 3. You know, how... More than ever, you need to just guard your heart because out of your heart is where everything flows. And you know what? God is so good. And, you know, you prayed a little while about ago, uh, Gordon, about peace. Yes. Peace is, is powerful in your life. Mm -hmm. And you have to come to the place. Does anyone just feel like these are completely empty platitudes that we're hearing here? I mean, she's going to make a truckload of money. She's going to sell millions and millions of copies of this book. Yes, as you know, the Osteen brand here, and she's true to the brand. I mean, how does this compare to what you just heard Paul Washer say? I mean, does this sound remotely similar? Where you can just get in the presence of God and you can be in peace because that's when you're going to hear from God. That's when you're going to be able to distinguish what direction to go. And you got to remember, God said he'll never leave you or forsake you. So it may seem out of control, but you got to realize God is in control. Yeah, so we here we're telling a whole bunch of people that God will never leave them nor forsake them. Yet none of these people, the majority of them that you're talking to, Victoria, um, have actually heard, really heard about their state before God and his wrath against their sin and their need for repentance and, the, and their need to trust in Christ and receive the forgiveness of sins that he won for them on the cross. Yet apparently God will never leave or forsake those people who who've never repented or trusted in Christ and received his mercy and forgiveness. Maybe they're not sinners. Maybe they're not sinners because that, that would be negative and, um, and you don't want to dwell on that because that's negative. You just want to lift people up. We want to be positive. Did you always have this ability to see the positive and hang on to it? I mean, I know when you were a child, you wrote a note that you found many years later that sort of expressed positive feelings about yourself, even as a little one. I'm what? She wrote a note that expressed positive feelings about herself? And this is embraced as Christianity. I mean, a lot of people don't have that. Where do you think that came from in your life? 
Well, I really believe I was fortunate enough to be raised in a good Christian home. My mother and father, you know, they loved us. They took care of us. They spoke positive words into us. I think that's one of the greatest gifts you can give to your children. One of the greatest gifts that you can give to your child is to teach them that they are a wretched, rotten sinner and in need of God's mercy and grace. Just that that affirmation and support. You know, I never felt like I had to perform. Mm -hmm. You know, I felt like I was, they loved me in spite of, you know, the little things. They never, they never, uh, uh, you know, my value and my worth didn't come from making Mm -hmm. a mistake. It came from because of their love. And so I think that had a lot to do with with the the positiveness, mm-hmm. the support that I received, but yeah, I wrote a note that said uh, I wrote a note when I was about seven said, "Mom and Dad, you know I love you." I used to write the mushiest notes. It's like <laughs> I love you, I love you, you know. It said, "I feel like we're important, and I know that we are." And it was years later that I came across that note. Joel and I were just going through some things, and I was just amazed. That I could have said that. Yeah, seven, you, you yeah. recognize that. Yeah, and it yeah. dawned on me. That was God saying, we're all important. Yeah. You're valuable to life. Your life makes a mm-hmm. difference, and it matters. <clears throat> Where's repentance and the forgiveness of sins? Where is Christ crucified for our sins? So, this... Is the Christian message that you're important and you can make a difference in life and God wants your best. Is is that the Christian message? Is that what Christ told us to go and preach? Hmm. Let me read Jesus' words from Luke chapter 24. Starting at verse 44, it says this, Then he, Jesus, said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses to these things. Yeah, it sounds different than what uh, Victoria's teaching us. We're going to get to some more passages of Scripture that are just going to take her book to task. Wait till you hear what Jesus has to say about loving your life. Most people haven't had the kind of childhood where parents are always affirming, always believing, always supporting. You co-pastor a church of four... Oh, she's not a pastor. She is incapable of holding that office. Thirty-some thousand people. What do you see? What are you hearing from people that's the heart cry that they have today? I think everyone wants to be loved and accepted. I think they want to feel the purpose for their life. They want to have good relationships. They want to be happy. You know, women, really, they want to have their family in order. They want to be happy. And so I think that's where people are today. They just want to find that balance and that happiness. And I believe that, you know, through God, we can do that. Well, you. Mm, So that's the Christian message, that through God, we can have happiness and balance in our lives. Is that really the Christian message? Christ died so that you can be happy. 
just tell us how you do that? A church of 47,000 people, you're writing a book, you've got children. How do you keep that all balanced in your own life? You know what we do? We prioritize our time. We make the most important things the most important things because there is so much to do, Terry, as you know. You could be going in a hundred different directions, but you just have to say, for this season of my life, this is what is important to me. We spend a lot of time with our family. This is what's important to me. What about what's important to Christ? Does that have any importance at all? Because our children are 13 and 9, and we realize this is a season we'll never get back. It goes fast. You know, these it? are the good old days, yeah. and so that's why you have to live today to your fullest. Amen. Well, that's what the book is about. It's called Love Your Life, Living Happy, Healthy, and Whole. It's available nationwide. There are all kinds of wonderful things in here, 11 ways to love your life, lots of specific admonitions to all of us of ways that we can live a life that's truly victorious. And it's written by our guest, Victoria Osteen. So get a hold of it. We've got a little fact sheet for you about the 11 ways to love your life. We've kind of put it together in a concise form. If you'd like that, it's available just by calling 1-800. Love Your Life. That's the name of the book. I would like to offer some biblical counterpoints and these counterpoints I offer in the words of Jesus Christ. Yeah, it's an 11-step program on learning to love your life. Uh-huh. Let me read for you, for you from the Gospel of John, chapter 12, starting at verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast, there were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life will lose it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will also there my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Did you hear that? So Victoria Osteen wants you to learn to love your life. Jesus said, whoever loves his life loses it. That's not the only place where Jesus talks about these things. Let me read to you Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and his mother, and his wife, and his children, and brothers, and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What? What? Victoria Osteen's book is called Love Your Life. Jesus says if you don't love, if you don't hate your life, you cannot be his disciple. Was Jesus a liar? What's he talking about? For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, he is not able to finish. All who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down and first deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has 
cannot be my disciple. Was Jesus joking? Was he kidding? Was he just, you know, say, you know, that Jesus, he, you know, he just kind of says things that are crazy talk. <laughs> Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 34, and calling the crowd to himself with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me for whoever would save his life will lose it. So if you want your best life now, you're going to lose life. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory, in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Or how about this one from the Gospel of John, chapter 15, starting at verse 18. It says, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. The world loves the Osteens as their own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember that the, the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So Jesus Christ himself says that if you do not hate your life, you cannot be his disciple. It says to deny yourself. If you try to have your best life now, you will actually lose your life. Different Completely different message. Completely different message. Compare what you just heard Heresy Barbie say to what you heard Paul Washer say. Folks, these are not the same religion. What the Osteens are preaching is not biblical Christianity. In fact, if what they're teaching is Christianity, then I'm going to go to hell because I don't believe their Christianity because their Christianity contradicts what I read in the scriptures. It contradicts the very words of our Lord. Does God want you to learn to love your life? No, he wants you to learn to hate it. He wants you to deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow him. What does it mean to hate your life? I'll tell you what it means. It means to hate every wretched sin that you commit. To absolutely be utterly decimated and sorry and penitent for the wickedness that you commit on a daily basis towards a holy and just God. The God who gave you life. The God who gave you life and yet your way of saying thank you to him is to disobey and hate him with all of your might. That's what we're talking about here. So to hate your life means to literally hate that about yourself. To deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Jesus to death. Even if that means you dying yourself. Remember the apostles? We talked about them earlier. Ten of them died a martyr's death. Only one died of old age. And he died in exile and suffered greatly for bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of its shameful glory. 
He was a witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Apostle John was. And he went to his death believing in the shame of the cross. Detect a little bit of, uh, I'm not putting up with this garbage anymore in me, kind of feeling. I'm serious, folks. It's time for us to say enough is enough. I believe with Paul Washer, unless God grants the church in America repentance, we are literally heading into a new dark age or the end of the world. And when Christ comes back, he's not going to have positive, happy affirmations to say to Joel Osteen and Victoria and those who follow their heresies. He will say, away from me, I never knew you. And off they will be ushered into the lake of fire where God's wrath burns for all eternity. We need to share that message with people, folks. It's time for us to not put up with the Osteens of the world. And I have no idea how CBN can even be called the Christian Broadcasting Network or the 700 Club have anything to do with Christianity when they bring somebody like Victoria Osteen on the air and talk about learning to love your life. I don't love my life. I hate it. The way Christ has called me to hate it. And I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. And I look forward to the King of Kings coming and setting up his kingdom here. And he's coming soon. He's coming soon. Anyway, if you would like to email me and let me know how far off I am and how the Osteens are actually vessels of the Lord Jesus Christ and they're just doing it in a positive way, Email me at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. It's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Until tomorrow, may God bless you. (laughs) We got a good show lined up for tomorrow, too, by the way. (laughs) Looking forward to it. Take care. We'll see you then, or hear you then, or whatever we do with you then. (laughs) Later.